your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There are five jello flavors that uh, flopped over the years. The medical medium, Anthony William, would likely be troubled by the failure of one of these. Which one is that? And there's also a question left over from last week. Where did the gossamer albatross land? So that's what we're starting out with today. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. I'm uh, Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society and uh, chat with you here every Sunday morning. Uh, Sunday afternoon, and uh, we talk about the recent advances in science. We also tantalize you with some questions like I just uh, did. You know, for the first time in about uh, a year and a half, uh, I had lunch on a terrace, and uh, kind of makes you feel like you're you're coming back to n- normal. And, uh, you know, the uh, vaccination rates are increasing. I'm happy to see that. Hospitalizations are decreasing. We seem to be going in the right direction. But, of course, there is this uh, nagging business of the variants. And we're not quite sure where that is going. Uh, But uh, vaccinations work. And I get very annoyed when I keep getting these emails from from people, from the anti-vaxxers about, you know, how uh, the whole COVID thing was overblown and the vaccines uh, basically are are just a money-making scheme by the companies. This is uh, just uh, uh, absolute nonsense. All right. There are several things that I want to discuss with you here today. I want to talk a little bit about uh, supplements, more specifically supplements for macular degeneration, which may not be doing what uh, they are supposed to do. Also, given the hot weather, uh, I want to talk about something called water intoxication, which is a very interesting uh, uh, phenomenon. And uh, we'll um, also discuss... uh, the cherry on top of that ice cream sundae that many of you are either having or are desiring to to have. Well, let, let me just uh, give a few uh, comments here on uh, macular degeneration, which is, of course, is a, an eye ailment and it can eventually lead to uh, blindness. It's it's basically a degeneration of the macula, which is a very important part of of the eye. And uh, if you lose proper functioning in the macula, of course, you can uh, lose your vision. And it very often comes with with age. Now, there are some supplements that have been able to um, retard the degeneration. They don't cure the disease. But uh, these are supplements that have been properly vetted by uh, uh, medical authorities. And they usually contain lutein or zeaxanthine or mesozeaxanthine. These are the... the, uh, uh, carotenoids that uh, do the job. Uh, then there's uh, also the possibility of having uh, small amounts of copper, zinc in, in some of these supplements and other vitamins. Anyway, there are numerous of these eye remedies that are available. But here is what is, is concerning. A recent uh, study done by the Nutrition Research Center in, in Ireland, headed by uh, a researcher called John Nolan, 
found that these products may not actually contain what the label says that they contain. This is a problem that I've often discussed before uh, as it relates to dietary supplements, and it is a very uh, serious issue. I, I don't think these things are properly regulated by Health Canada uh, or in the U.S. Uh, in fact, they're not regulated at all because they don't fall under FDA jurisdiction, these natural health uh, supplements. Anyway, uh, in this study, 64% uh, of all the products sold for macular degeneration in Canada uh, did not meet the standards that were declared on the label. Now, interestingly enough, we have this rather bizarre business in Canada where in natural health products, they have to be within 80% of what is declared on the label. So the government doesn't even insist that they have exactly what the label says. Just having 80% of the ingredients seems to be okay. And of course, that is not okay. That That is a very significant uh, uh, difference. The uh, uh, paper did not name exactly which supplements f uh, were not compliant and, and which were, uh, because Health Canada said that they are going to have to look into it and do their own testing before they publicize uh, this. But what seems to be um, uh, clear in the paper that gel formulations were less likely to uh, to fall into this category of not being uh, compliant. The powder versions were the ones that were most problematic. So uh, we wait for Health Canada uh, to take their usually slow and laborious step uh, to come out with some sort of advice about these uh, supplements that are supposed to deal with macular degeneration. And uh, I think it's a very serious issue, not only for this particular case, but in general for supplements. People rely on them, uh, although there is absolutely no evidence that dietary supplements uh, do any good as long as you have a proper uh, balanced diet. But at least uh, the Natural Product Division of Health Canada should insist that whatever is on the label uh, should be what is, uh, what is in the product. So uh, that's where it stands with those supplements. Now, the questions that I, I uh, asked you, if you have an answer, 514-790-0800, uh, or you can text to 514-800. Uh, I also want to tell you about a, a new venture that uh, I've undertaken. Uh, it's kind of fun, and I think it's interesting. I'm calling it Morning Cup of Joe. And I'm trying every morning to come out with a video, very short, uh, usually, you know, three to five minutes, about interesting things that I have come across, usually that day or the day before. I'm putting out these out in, in, in the morning. And I, I like to infuse, as you know, a little whimsy into these. So it's kind of fun and uh, informative. So they're videos. So how do you access them? I always put them on my Facebook uh, page. And of course, you, you can find me just by going to Joe Schwartz and, and uh, you can find me on uh, on Facebook. But I also do put them on, uh, on our YouTube channel. And uh, that is youtube.com slash McGill OSS. And if you go there, then you can just uh, uh, look at videos. There's a, a drop-down menu where you can click on videos and Actually, you can see hundreds of my videos, but but uh, including the the new ones. So you can kind of check in every uh, morning on on weekdays for your morning cup of joe. And uh, I'd like to get some feedback on this to see whether or not it is uh, worthwhile doing. I must say it is it is sort of fun to to do it, but uh, 
uh, I'd also like to know how you guys uh, uh, like it. So I put in interesting little, you know, uh, tidbits, uh, which I come across as well. I just came across a paper that that uh, looked at uh, sex in the Victorian times. And yes, they were engaging in this activity back then as well. But they were also writing a lot of silly things about it. For example, there was uh, Dr. John Cowan, who thought that large buns coiled atop the head, which were, in, in fact, uh, the rage back then in the 1880s. And uh, uh, he did not like this. He said that this puts great pressure on the hair, and that in turn uh, puts pressure on the brain and produces heat in the brain. And that increases blood flow to the brain's sex center, and it causes a chronic desire for its sexual exercise, which I, I guess he thought was uh, not a desirable thing. So he told ladies, do not put pressure on your brain by putting these large coiled buns of hair on top of your head. Oh, there were others as well. Dr. William Acton, for example, said that sexual congress ought not to take place more frequently than once in seven or ten days. And he said, if that seems unsatisfying, he had a solution. He said, when my opinion is asked by patients whose natural desires are strong, I advise those wishing to control their passions to indulge in intercourse twice on the same night. I guess the idea here was that um, that would tire them out or make it seem like you know this is not a good thing to do and they wouldn't want to do it again for a couple of weeks and then there was orson squire fowler great name i don't know who this person was but uh his actually i'm not even sure it was a he but anyway this person thought that all non-exercised organs shrivel and through moderate use, they could help sex organs be made larger in most cases. I utter this all-glorious truth professionally from having known many successful experiments. I think it was a he. But be warned, all half-crazed, fitful, fiery action of these organs, as of all others, burns out and diminishes their size. So I guess the message was, Yes, uh, it is okay to engage in such uh, activity if you do it relatively infrequently because then it will increase the size of the organs. But you do not want to do this often in a fitful, fiery way because that will burn out and diminish the size of these organs. All right, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. And uh, we're going to take a look at traffic, after which we'll be right back. And let me just repeat my questions. Where did the gossamer albatross land? And there are five jello flavors that flopped over the years. The medical medium, Anthony William, would likely be troubled by the failure of one of these. Which one was that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. She 
Well, I still don't have an answer to any of my questions. Uh, I'm going to give you another one, though, so that you can puzzle over this as well. What beverage is made from the blue agave plant? What beverage is made from the blue agave plant? Okay, let me tell you an interesting kind of personal story. The first time I, I came to uh, Canada, first time, the only time I came to, to Canada, which was way back in, uh, uh, well, a very long time ago in the 1950s. And the very first dessert I ever had in Canada was a banana split. Now, of course, I, ice cream I knew. We had uh, actually very good ice cream in Hungary. But I, I have to tell you, I'd never seen a banana. Uh, I had seen oranges. And I remember at one time when, when I was in grade two, uh, my parents somehow got six oranges, and we gave that as a as a gift to my teacher at Christmas time, and that was just an amazing gift. But anyway, I had never seen uh, uh, a banana. But now, when I saw this banana split, I mean, I don't think I had ever before seen so much ice cream in you know in one bowl before. But there was that dazzling bright red specimen that practically glowed atop. Uh, each of those enormous scoops of chocolate-drenched uh, ice cream. And that was my first encounter with the maraschino cherry. And, of course, uh, uh, later on, I would go on to have many encounters with that strange little fruit, not because of its taste, but because of the chemistry in it, which is very interesting. And the birthplace of the maraschino cherry, and you know, the one that, that you see in your, your drinks and the cocktails, well, the birthplace of that is in the lab. However, its ancestry actually traces back to 1905, when black Morasca cherries preserved in a sugar-sweetened liqueur were introduced by the Luxardo distillery in Croatia. The spirit was distilled from a fermented mix of cherries, their pits, their leaves and stems, and this liquor was called maraschino. And Obviously, that's why the cherries that were steeped in it uh, got the name of maraschino cherries. They had a slightly bitter taste thanks to amygdalin, uh, a compound contained in the pits. But anyway, unlike fresh cherries that bruised and spoiled easily, these maraschinos kept well and they traveled very well. And by the late 1800s, they had actually crossed the Atlantic. And boy, were they ever welcomed by bartenders here because, of course, they enticed the drinkers. But it turned out that these maraschino cherries that were imported from Europe were expensive, so American ingenuity went to work, and uh, uh, because they, uh, those kind of cherries were scarce, they had to resort to using an American variety called Royal Anne, and, uh, of course, uh, they weren't able to make the maraschino liquor, uh, so they... Uh, tried all kinds of, of ways to, to preserve these cherries, and they found that sodium metabisulfite worked well. This is a chemical that releases sulfur dioxide, and that's a very effective uh, preservative. However, it also destroyed the color and the flavor of the, of the cherry. Well, it wasn't much of a problem as far as the color went because uh, synthetic coal tar dyes were already available, and benzaldehyde could be added to boost the taste. Now, benzaldehyde is, is found actually in cherries. It is one of the natural flavors. But when it's used in an additive, it's made synthetically. Uh, of course, that really doesn't matter. Benzaldehyde is benzaldehyde, whether it's made in the lab or whether you extract it from some uh, plant product. 
But anyway, these imitation maraschino cherries looked and tasted nothing like the original, uh, but they were very attractive. So in ice cream parlors, they were put on top of the uh, sundaes. But they were pumped full of sugar to t satisfy American taste buds. So they were more candy than, than fruit. And there was another problem. They tended to turn mushy. And in 1911, one unhappy food critic opined that the long imprisonment in a bottle reduced these chemically manipulated cherries to a formless gummy lump. And he predicted that this abomination will disappear uh, once its utter unfitness has been manifested. But the cherries, of course, did not disappear, mostly thanks to the work of Professor Ernest Wiegand at the Oregon Agricultural College, and now that is the Oregon State University, and in 1925, he tackled this fitness problem. And his effort was especially welcome because Oregon grew a lot of cherries. And in fact, the university still offers a whole course on the maraschino cherry. Wigan worked for six years before discovering that calcium chloride, when added to the bleaching solution, cross-linked the pectin polymers that are found in the flesh of cherries, and that led to a firm texture. There was no more mushiness. He also found that um, a preservative called sodium benzoate, another called potassium sorbate, would, would give long life to these cherries, and that if you maintain the pH below 4.5, you didn't have to worry about uh, botulism. And uh, he also found that uh, a red dye called FDNC number four would impart uh, a very nice color. Uh, this dye eventually was removed from the market because of some studies that showed toxicity in dogs, although very questionable, and was eventually replaced by one called red dye number 40, or Allura red, or red number three, erythrocin, and those are used today. Uh, there have been some issues raised about these synthetic dyes possibly affecting children's behavior, uh, but of course the amount that is found in a cherry occasionally consumed on top of a sundae is not going to make any kid bounce off the walls. But now you may be thinking that the current version of the maraschino cherry belongs in the frankenfood category because of all the additives, the dyes, the flavors, etc. And you may be wondering if the original Luxardo cherries are available. Well, yes, they are. During World War II, the distillery was essentially destroyed and many in the Luxardo family were killed. But Giorgio Luxardo survived and he took some mascara saplings with him and relocated in Italy and soon built a distillery and began to produce the Maraschino Originale liquor and the fabled cherries as well. No artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives, but still loaded with sugar. Since cherry pits are part of the liquor's recipe, people have wondered about the presence of cyanide, given that amygdalin releases benzaldehyde and hydrogen cyanide when the pits are crushed. Well, a curiosity here is that both benzaldehyde and hydrogen cyanide smell like bitter almonds. Remember those mystery stories? The detective detecting the smell of almonds in a corpse's mouth and concluding that murder was committed? But anyway, no need to worry about maraschino liquor, though. No more than a trace of cyanide per serving. And those fake maraschinos that we normally consume here, they may smell of almonds, but there's no cyanide in sight. You're just sniffing the added benzaldehyde flavoring. A recent New York Times article poked fun at the nutritional composition of the highly processed maraschinos, 
calling them the culinary equivalent of an embalmed corpse. Ah, come on now. I mean, nobody eats maraschinos for the nutritional value. They're a little fun. That's all. If you want the real deal, though, they are available. But you can expect to pay, oh, kind of through the nose for them, $1.60 per cherry. So I wouldn't waste those by putting them into the kids' uh, Shirley Temple drink. But if you're going to have a banana and you really want to enjoy it, go all out. Get the Luxardo cherries. Put it on top of that banana split or the sundae. I think you will see quite a difference between that and the chemical concoction that we call the maraschino cherry here. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check what CTV News has to say. And after that, we'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Well, I did have an answer texted in to the question about the agave plant and what is made from that. And of course, that is tequila, tequila. But I still don't have answers to my other questions. <clears throat> Where did the gossamer albatross land? There are five jello flavors that flopped over the years. And one of these uh, would be particularly troublesome to the medical medium, Anthony William. Why is that? And which flavor are we talking about? All right, let me give you another one, seeing that you're, you're having trouble today with this. Okay, here we go. Nikola Tesla reportedly once said, I love that blank as a man loves a woman and she loved me. As long as I had her, there was a purpose to my life. Fill in that blank. Let me repeat. Nikola Tesla reportedly once said, quote, I love that blank as a man loves a woman and she loved me. As long as I had her, there was a purpose to my life. I want you to fill in that blank. All right, the hot weather, and we're being told to make sure that we hydrate ourselves, but you don't want to overhydrate. That's what brings the following story to my mind. You know that only the dose makes the poison. That's our anthem of toxicology, which I sing to you all the time. The most innocuous substances can be deadly in high doses, and that includes water. Believe it or not, there is such a thing as water poisoning, and it can be lethal. If body fluids become excessively diluted, sodium concentrations in the blood drop dramatically. Sodium is an essential mineral in the body and plays a critical role in the transmission of nerve impulses in the brain and in muscles. Our body regulates the concentration of sodium in the blood by moving water in and out of blood. If the sodium concentration is high, water moves from cells into the blood, increasing blood pressure. As water moves from brain cells into the blood, the brain actually shrinks and confusion and seizures can result. If the sodium concentration is low, the reverse happens. Water moves out of blood cells. This can be disastrous to the brain since the absorption of water by cells causes the brain to swell. That can lead to lethargy, loss of consciousness, even death. Unfortunately, this is not only theory. Excessive water consumption has killed. There are many cases like that, but I want to tell you about a particularly disturbing one. 
The parents of four-year-old Cassandra Kilpack were charged in 2005 with child abuse and murder. That was in Utah. The couple had adopted the child and felt that she wasn't bonding appropriately with her parents. They claimed to have received some misguided advice from some alternative therapist about how to help the child through extreme emotional problems. At least this is what they build their defense around, essentially accusing the therapist of malpractice. The Kilpack said they were told to tie Cassandra's hands behind her back and force her to drink huge quantities of water. Why? This was supposed to take the child back to infancy when she only drank liquids so she could be reprogrammed. The prosecution, of course, didn't buy this argument and maintained that such hydrotherapy was never recommended. The parents were simply punishing the child for having stolen some Kool-Aid from a sibling. What really happened isn't clear. Was it some alternative therapy gone awry, or was it just abusive parents punishing a child? What is clear, though, is that Cassandra died from water intoxication. After a -a three-and-a-half-week trial, it took the jury just six hours to find Jeanette Kilpak guilty of killing her four-year-old daughter. Her husband, Richard Kilpak, was not found guilty. Anyway, Jeanette was sentenced to 15 years, but uh, was out on parole after six years. It's a particularly disturbing case, but as I said, it is not the only one, because there are all kinds of people, including some marathon runners, who have had disastrous outcomes after overloading on water. So, of course, it is important to be hydrated. but you do not want to do this to any kind of, uh, of an extreme. Just because small amount of water is needed regularly, it doesn't mean that we should be guzzling gallons. And that, of course, goes for so many things in life. Moderation is the answer in everything, including in moderation. Sometimes it is okay to go a little bit overboard. You want to have that maraschino cherry, have it. Forget that it is not a nutritional miracle. Of course it isn't. But you don't have to judge every morsel that you put into your mouth and every drop of drink that you consume and ask yourself whether or not this is, is good for us or, or, or not, right? Okay, let's go to the lines. Teresa may have an answer. Hi, Teresa. Yes, hello. Um, about the uh, gossamer albatross? Yes, um, would it have landed at Cap Grinet? It sure would have landed in Cap Grinet. And of course, since you know the answer to that, you know that it wasn't a bird, right? No, it was, it was a human-powered um, plane, I guess. Exactly. It, it was a human-powered aircraft. And it was a very interesting-looking thing. Uh, it was very light. It was uh, made of very light plastic. It was made. The frame was made of carbon fiber. And the wings were uh, expanded polystyrene, and this whole thing was wrapped in a transparent uh, polyester called mylar. And uh, it was uh, piloted, if that that is uh, the word uh, to be used, by a a very, very fit cyclist, Brian Allen. And he uh, pedaled like crazy to keep that propeller turning. And he made the 22.2-mile crossing across the English Channel in 2 hours and 49 minutes, top speed of 18 miles per hour, and an average altitude of only 5 feet. 
So he must have had, in some cases, the waves almost reaching this uh, uh, this aircraft. But it was uh, quite a technological achievement in order to be able to to do this. And there was a, a prize money also that was offered for this. And uh, uh, so, you know, there was a lot of engineering uh, competition in order to uh, make this happen. Uh, and at, at one point, he almost gave up because he was running out of his own steam, right? I mean, having to pedal for such a long time. But then as he caught sight of the French shore, he kind of got a uh, some new energy and he was able to make it, and as you said, land at Cap Griffinet in France, having crossed the English Channel on a human-powered uh, aircraft. So thanks very much for the answer to that uh, question. All right, maybe Liz has an answer to one of my other questions. Liz? Yes, um, I think I have the answer, but it's uh, probably not correct. I have much to the answer. Um, I think it's Electra. It's a Tesla question, and he was such a fan of electricity, electric being a woman. Well, uh, no. Uh, Nikola Tesla, of course, as you say, was certainly a fan of electricity. He was a rather interesting character, numerous patents. Uh, he, he was really an electrical genius. Yes. But in this, in this particular case, the, the word electricity is not the one that fits the blank. So once again, let me repeat. I love that blank as a man loves a woman, and she loved me. As long as I had her, there was a purpose to my life. So said Nikola Tesla, and it wasn't electricity. It was, the word that goes into that blank is rather unexpected. Uh, unless you know something about the history of Tesla. Uh, Tesla was, uh, without a doubt, a brilliant man, but he was also somewhat bizarre. And uh, the word that goes into that blank there certainly is reflective of his uh, bizarre nature. So we're still looking for the question about what word goes into, I love that blank, as a man loves a woman and she loved me, as long as I had her, there was a purpose to my life. That statement uttered by Nikola Tesla. And then, of course, I still would like to know about which of the jello flavors that has been abandoned uh, would have troubled, the fact that it was abandoned would have troubled the medical medium, Anthony William, and if you know anything about him and the remedy that he usually recommends for just about anything, then you will know what the answer is to that question. But right now we're going to check what traffic is like out there. And after that, we'll be right back. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figure it out what's true. I think many of you will remember Neil McKenty's famous saying, the lines are blazing. Well, these days, the lines don't blaze often because people would rather text in. But right now, they are kind of blazing. We have a lot of people on the line. So let's check with Jerry. Jerry. I, I think the uh, <laughs> the flavoring question would be celery, which is uh, Anthony Williams' uh, golden Absolutely. Chalice, I think. Absolutely. Uh, Anthony William, of course, who calls himself the medical medium. <laughs> 
uh, writes books and has a radio show where he gives advice. And the advice actually comes from the spirit world. He claims to be in contact with a, a spirit physician uh, who gives uh, advice. And very often the advice is to drink celery juice. And this would be comical, you know, if it weren't so sad. Uh, because people listen to this character and all the foolishness that he uh, he espouses. But in fact, uh, indeed, their jello once did produce a celery flavor. Uh I, I think that uh, that was supposed to be mixed into a salad, I would yeah. think. But anyway, it didn't do well. It was removed. Uh, and there are four other uh, flavors that never made it. Any idea what those are? Well, the, I did Google, of course. Uh, uh, yeah. So they had bubblegum, chocolate, coffee, cola. Yes. The other ones that I see here. Uh, there was candy. another one, apple. Apple never made it. Oh, oh that's, surprisingly. that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the coffee flavor was one of the earliest ones. They tried that in 1918. <laughs> it's and so it nutritious, right? <laughs> it didn't, didn't work. Uh, uh, Jello, it's a very interesting concoction. I, I don't know if I have ever in my life had a full serving of, uh, of Jello. I, I, don't, I, I must have tasted it at, at some time. If I may, uh, it's it, very useful when you're preparing for a colonoscopy, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those of us with is. Crohn's or colitis know that stuff. It's about the only thing. Yes, you can they, eat exactly, your exactly. <laughs> but you, you know, something else that you know is that if you're going to be uh, eating Jello before a colonoscopy, that, you have to make sure that you don't eat any that is colored red. That's right. You that's don't right. eat cherry or anything. Yeah, very. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good, good observation. <laughs> okay, very that's good. So, so we got that question out of the way. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, let's go to Susan. Susan. Hey, how are you? Hi. Well, thank you. Uh, okay. So for the Nikola Tesla question, I know he was in love with a pigeon. Yes, it would be <laughs> he a was. Bird or a pigeon. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. I love that pigeon as a man yeah. loves a woman and she loved me. As long as yeah. I had her, there was purpose to my life. Anyway, this was one of Tesla's quirks, his fondness of pigeons. And when he was living in New York, he spent hours every week feeding pigeons in the park. And uh, he often took uh, injured ones home and nursed them. And he kept his windows open in his hotel room uh, so that pigeons could uh, fly in as they wished. Obviously, there was a mess in that, that room. And mm -hmm. he once even asked a hotel chef to prepare a special mix of seeds for his friends. Uh, obviously, Tesla's friends found this passion for pigeons uh, very puzzling. Uh, but he had other strange characters. He was also he was a germaphobe. Uh, he never married, and he admitted to falling in love with a special white pigeon that visited him regularly. Yeah. And that's when he came out with that classic uh, statement. His bachelor lifestyle likely stemmed from his belief that in intimacy would interfere with his uh, scientific research. And he yeah. said, he said, I do not think you can name many great inventions that have been made by married men. Huh. Uh, I, I don't think that that is true. But uh, anyway, in 1922, he reported that the white pigeon had flown into his room to tell him that she was dying. And before the bird passed, he said a white light shone from her eyes, brighter than anything he had ever generated with his electrical machinery. Tesla was heartbroken when the bird died and told friends at that moment he felt his life work was finished. I mean, he, he was 
bizarre, as I said, many idiosyncrasies. He was obsessed with the number three and engaged yeah. in a number of compulsive behaviors that had to do with three. He commonly washed his hands three times in a row. He would walk around the building three times before entering. He hated pearls and he refused to talk to women who wore them. Exactly why nobody was a ever able to figure out, but uh, they believe it was, you know, somehow associated with his uh, OCD, his obsessive compulsive disorder. But mm -hmm. uh, nobody, of course, can uh, take away his accomplishments as uh, as a scientist. Uh, you know, transmitting electricity without wiring—that was uh, his idea. And uh, also, people don't know that originally, when he uh, he was Serbian, and when he first came to America, he went to work for Edison uh, before uh, sort of starting out on his own. All right. So thanks very much for giving us that answer and for uh, allowing me to tell the public about the rather strange behavior of uh, of Nicholas uh, Tesla. Okay. Well, I, I think I. Uh, I won't. Uh, I won't ask. Uh, well, maybe I. I will ask one other question. So maybe you can work on this uh, over the week because I think it may not be an easy one, and we'll bring it up uh, next time. So, although we associate Goop G O O P with Gwyneth Paltrow's company, that term was actually used in a 1967 Elvis Presley movie as an acronym for a product that is formulated by Elvis, who in the movie plays a chemist. What movie is that? So we'll bring that up next week. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, you can uh, kind of do a little bit of research and find out uh, what the movie was in which uh, Elvis played a chemist. Very, very uh, unusual. Sigmota is a town in Sweden. And believe it or not, it holds an annual pee outside day. The purpose of this is to save on what water uh, and the water that is normally used to flush uh, toilets. Peeing outside for one day cuts water used by 50% for that day. And citizens are urged to be discreet and uh, obviously not to make use of windows. You can also kind of save on the amount of water that is used in flushing by putting a brick inside the holding tank of, of the flush toilet. And that can lead to significant water savings. And there is no loss of flushing effectiveness. There's more water in there than you need. And uh, I think that is more convenient than scampering outside, uh, especially for the 50% of the population uh, for whom trees and walls are not uh, an alternative to the uh, toilet. Well, talking about uh, peeing, uh, give you one other bit of wisdom here. Urban men have a higher incidence of bladder cancer than rural men. And that was a study done a while ago in Israel, which showed that men outside of big cities urinated more often and drank more fluids. Urban men relieve themselves an average of five times per day, rural men six. Urban urine was also more concentrated and seems that prolonged urine storage is more likely in urban areas and they may promote, uh, the storage may promote contact of uh, whatever carcinogens there may be in our intake in water and food with the bladder. So there is another reason to drink up 
to hydrate yourself. But again, I remind you of the other story that I told you about extremes of hydration. So moderation is the answer. And that's it. We are out of time. Well, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, remember to check out our daily meetings over our morning cup of joe. You can go to my Facebook site or you go to youtube.com slash McGill OSS. See you next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.